for the fulfillment of God's eternal purpose, the Lord has an urgent need for the body of Christ to be produced, to grow, to be built up, to be experienced as a reality, and to function in all manner of practical ways. This is where we began with the Lord's urgent need according to his economy. This body which the Lord desires and needs is the issue of the crystallized significance of Christ's incarnation, that is, of the mingling of divinity and humanity, the issue of the Lord's God-man living, that is, the expression of God, humanity, the issue of his all-inclusive death, that is, the issue of his crucifixion that solves all problems and releases the divine life, and the issue of his resurrection in which he became the firstborn son, we were regenerated to be the many sons, and the Lord became the life-giving spirit. The issue of the intrinsic significance of incarnation, human living, crucifixion, and resurrection is the body of Christ, a four-in-one organic entity, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, and all the believers as a corporate person. Before we come to outline three, which is directly on the crystallized significance of the body of Christ, I would like to say uh, a brief introductory word in four sections, giving these main points, but not with that much development for now. Our eternal destiny is to live as and in the New Jerusalem as the consummation of the body of Christ. This eternal destiny was determined by God himself in eternity past. We know this because of the revelation in Ephesians 1. In verse 4, we were chosen in Christ to be holy. In verse 5, we were predestinated unto sonship according to the good pleasure of God's will. Why were we chosen to be holy? That is, to be the same as God in nature. And why were we predestinated unto sonship? That is to be divine sons with the life and nature of God for his expression. The reason is not that God would have a huge congregation meeting somehow in a universal stadium 
and that this huge congregation would praise him, would extol him, would worship him. God is not interested in that kind of result simply to have a vast congregation of persons, all of whom are holy, all of whom are sons, but they are not a corporate entity apart from their assembling. God's heart's desire is to produce a corporate person, a corporate God-man, who eventually will be his spouse, his wife, his counterpart, with whom he will live, as they say, happily ever after in the new heaven and the new earth as the new Jerusalem. There is no doubt that God was mindful of each one of us personally. But we were chosen collectively, corporately. Paul says us. He chose us. He predestinated us. We have, we have redemption in the beloved. We were raised together with Christ. We are seated together with Christ. Our destiny is to live eternally as a blessed part of a universal corporate God-man, the consummation of the body of Christ, the wife of the Lamb. It is very difficult for us to grasp this because simply by, human, by being human beings, we have a consciousness of ourselves originating from our natural human life. And this, of course, is compounded by the fall, which caused the soul to become the self, which is intensely centered on itself, and the things perceived to be of the self or of benefit to the self. And in a very real sense, this self becomes a prison in which we are all living in solitary confinement. And this is the situation of so many in the European continent. I don't know where my wife came up with this expression, thoughtful woman as she is. She speaks of a union of shared alienation, where all these persons are living collectively, but everyone is alienated, everyone is lost, everyone is in the land of Nod, which is not the land of napping, it's the land of wandering. 
When we are really in the mingled spirit, not just touching the spirit, but abiding in the spirit, exercising the spirit, the spirit of God may move within us in such a way that we are lifted out of ourselves, lifted out of our prisons, and we're able to glimpse the whole. This is what happened to John. He was an elderly man in his 90s on the island of Patmos, exiled because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. But he did the best thing such an exile could do. He was in spirit. And he saw the Lord amidst the lampstands. He saw the throne. He saw Babylon the Great. And he saw the new Jerusalem. Little by little, we will gradually realize we have a common personal destiny that is to be members of the body of Christ and parts of the new Jerusalem. The second matter in this opening portion is the body of Christ is a new creation absolutely in the resurrection life of Christ. Humankind in God's creation, something created by God but not indwelt by God, is in the realm of the natural created life. In our natural created human life is a strong communal or social sense. The need to be with others, to love and be loved by others. And that, of course, gives rise to all manner of institutions, of social gatherings, of communities. And religion, alas, is a form of that. The body of Christ is intrinsically different from, from any human society, even the most religious of human societies, because the body of Christ is a new creation, which means God himself is one with this entity. The body of Christ was not simply created, it is something created in Christ, with Christ, actually with the triune God, with the Father as the source, the Son as the element, the Spirit as the essence. And we will discover experientially and practically through all manner of experiences that our natural human life, whatever qualities it may possess, cannot live the life of the body of Christ. We do not have the strength, we do not have the energy, we do not have the endurance. And uh, I say uh, pleasantly, a test of this is having a meeting in the afternoon. 
I do sympathize with anyone who falls asleep during any message I give because once I fell asleep while I was speaking. And if I can fall asleep on myself and receive forgiveness, how can I withhold all manner of kindness and compassion from anyone here who might take a holy snooze in the marquee. We need another life. The resurrection life of Christ. I am happy to point out, and this might serve as a correction to some of our thinking. When God gives us this other life, the divine life, the eternal life, listen, the indestructible life, He does not give us a thing, a substance, an element called life. God never gives us things. The verses I will now mention are simple, but they are crucial. In 1 John chapter 5, the Apostle John, who really knew life, even I would say became life, said, God has given us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. How then does God give us another life Eternal, divine, indestructible, the resurrection life, it is not by infusing some element or substance that is impersonal into us. The life is in the Son. And God's feeling about the Son is profoundly personal and intimate and endearing. The, the life is in the Son, and God gives us life by giving us the Son in whom the life is. The Son who is actually the life itself. Life is a person. Resurrection is a person. We had a meeting about a week and a half ago in Anaheim. And the essence of that meeting was on Christ being our life in so many ways. And life is a person. And we may praise life and worship life and love life. It, I know it sounds strange to some, but I'd like to say life, I love you. Amen. 
Life, I praise you. That's a synonym of the Son of God Himself. And we pointed out that in eternity, the redeeming God and His counterpart will be Mr. and Mrs. Life. We are this becoming the same as God in life and nature. All of this is personal. For the body of Christ to be a new creation absolutely in the resurrection life of Christ means that the body of Christ depends for its existence on the person of the resurrected Christ as its life. That is why the body is indestructible, invincible, unconquerable, not even death can defeat it. It appeared 24 years ago, God's interests on the European continent were wiped out. So little remained. But we are here this weekend to proclaim death cannot hold the resurrection life. Not just the life itself, the life in the body of Christ. Then the third matter to emphasize, and this is a basic truth, but the problem with basic truths is we get used to them. They don't impress us so much. The body of Christ can exist only in oneness. And it is time for Europe to see the unique oneness in the universe. What is that? We know from studying the Lord's Prayer in John 17 that the pattern of oneness is the triune God Himself as the divine incorporation in which the Father, Son, and Spirit mutually indwell one another. And the Lord prayed for the expansion and the enlargement of this unique oneness so that it would include us, that we would be one in them, that we would be one even as the Father and the Son are one. The oneness of the body of Christ is the triune God himself applied to us, wrought into us, mingled with us, to be our oneness itself. And the body exists in this oneness. And now the remaining point, which will lead us directly into the outline, the body of Christ, a corporate person, is an organism that exists in and with the processed and consummated triune God experienced 
by all the members. I don't know why. Maybe it is that tendency of the masculine disposition to keep things objective and to somehow shy away from anything subjective which has appeared to be oh so feminine and hence unmanly. But the theological systems and those who propagate them present an altogether objective God. Many of the things ascribed to him by the theologians are true. God is this. God is that. God does this. God does that. God is sovereign. God is omniscient. God is immutable. God is self-existing. God is righteous. God is holy. And Christ came 2,000 years ago. He was born in a small village. He died. He resurrected. He ascended. Now he is transcendent only. But you read the New Testament. You read the Gospel of John. You read Paul's epistles. This same triune God who transcends the universe itself has decided in Christ and according to his divine economy to be intensely, essentially, and intrinsically involved with our entire tripartite being. We are actually, believe it or not, triune God-men. Just as the Lord was. He was begotten of the Spirit. The Spirit was the divine essence within Him. He said in John 14, The Father is in me, and I am in the Father. He remains the embodiment of the fullness of the Godhead. He is the entire God becoming flesh. He is the entire complete God manifested in the flesh. And the incredible wonder is that the spirit of the process and consummated triune God is actually inside of us, bringing the Father in the Son as the Spirit into our being. One of the greatest hymns ever written in the whole 2,000 years of the history of the church is hymn 608, What Mystery the Father, Son, and Spirit in person three, in substance, all are one. Then the chorus, the triune God, has now become our all. How wonderful, our, how marvelous, this gift divine we never can exhaust. You have this in Ephesians 3. 
a triune God-man is on his knees. He doesn't care if he's chained to a guard. The guard will just have to deal with it. He's burdened to pray. He said, I bow my knees unto the Father, of whom every family in heaven and on the earth is named, that he would grant that he would strengthen you with power through his Spirit into the inner man, that Christ may make his home in your hearts through faith. This is the triune God applied to us. So many pastors, especially Protestant ones, once they're ordained, they are permitted to speak what's called the benediction, the last verse of 2 Corinthians. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Well, I never got ordained. The Lord intervened to redirect my life according to the perfect will of God. They told me, because I'm not ordained, I can't give this blessing. But now, enemy, you just watch. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. We all, as priests of God, can bless one another in this way. Ministering the triune God, blessing one another with the triune God. I've some have been perfected by Brother Dick Taylor to say instead of good morning or good day, to say God morning. And I suspect I will continue to do this but I'd like to greet my brother Paul and say, have a triune God afternoon. Amen. Have a triune God day. Amen. The more we experience Christ, the more we touch the hem of the garment of the reality of the body of Christ, the more we see the heavenly vision, the more the Holy Spirit enlightens us, the more the written word becomes the living word we will realize that the body of Christ is a four-in-one organic entity. Amen. And that is what we have in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. And this is the crystallized significance of the body of Christ. And according to the Lord's burden... We will have message four devoted to one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And I was, I wouldn't say reminded, that's as if I really knew something. I was impressed. And I was struck by an utterance I read in, on page 3,400-something of the conclusion messages, which says that Ephesians 4, 6, which we will consider tonight, shows us the God of the body of Christ. What a lovely expression. 
This one God and Father who is over all, through all, and in all is the God of the body. If this expression strikes you as strange, if your, if your circuits now are overheating because you, you just feel initially uneasy, may I either relieve your unease or contribute to your unease by mentioning the following. Jacob came to Bethel twice. The first was when he received the vision in Genesis 28. And he called that place Bethel, the house of God. But after decades of dealing, and after being broken by the Lord, and put on the pathway of transformation, he came again. Not in vision, but in reality. And his experience indicates we all come into the church life twice. Doesn't mean we leave and then return. Is we enter in, in one way, and then at a certain time, we enter in, in another way. There is really no exception to this because it matches the two prayers in Ephesians 1 and 3. First, we come in by revelation, by vision. We see something. We see something of the truth concerning the church. This is what brought me in. The Lord showed me the ground of the church through the ministry. He showed me his eternal purpose through the ministry. These two things together. God's eternal purpose to have the church as the body of Christ. And the ground of the oneness of the body of Christ being the basis for our church practice. This corresponds to Jacob's dream. But then we come a second time. When Jacob came to Bethel the second time, it was not in a heavenly dream, a vision, but as a reality. And he returned to Bethel with his family. And the Lord appeared to him there. And he poured out a drink offering there. And he set up an altar there. And he named the altar. It was dedicated to El Beth El. To the God of the house of God. There is, of course, only one unique, true, and living God who is unchanging, who is eternal, who does not fluctuate in himself. But in our experience of him, 
He is various things to us at various stages of our experience. And at a certain time, this is in Genesis 35, corresponding to Ephesians 4, we meet God in a very different way. It's not slightly different. It is radically different. I would even say we meet a different God experientially from the God we have known before. Prior to Genesis 35, God is the God of Abraham. He's the God of Isaac. Even He becomes the God of Jacob. Altogether, pointing to the triune God. But now He manifests Himself as El Shaddai, which was revealed before, but He's manifests Himself as the God of the house. This is Bethel, the house of God. Jacob, I want you to know me as the God of the building, as the God of the house. In New Testament terms, the God of the church, the God of the body of Christ. There is a huge step experientially from knowing God in a personal and individual way, which knowing will never cease. He's so dear to you, your beloved, your Lord, your Savior, your Shepherd. But God cannot be the unlimited one to any individual. He can only be El Shaddai, the mighty one who nourishes us to something corporate. He is the God of the body of Christ, the God who can be experienced only in the body of Christ as a reality. When we are brought to Bethel, when we are brought to the reality of the body, we meet the triune God in this particular way. And when we touch the triune God in the body of Christ, we also touch in the body of Christ, the totality of the spiritual life experiences of all the members and their progressive experience and enjoyment of the triune God. And this triune God, with the life experiences of all the members, 
is now flowing as the fellowship through the entire body, supplying every member with the unlimited supply of the triune God in the body of Christ. I refer again to my consideration of Brother Nee's experience from the point of view of the body. He had come near to death much earlier in life. His health was fragile. He's there for 20 years. But he was not there only with his God. He was there with the God of the body of Christ. He was in the body, the prayers of the body, the experiences of the body, which were all released into the body by those who live in the body, became the bountiful supply. Paul, of course, took the lead in this. That's why he said, this will turn to my salvation through your prayer and the bountiful supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. The bountiful supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ will be released through your prayer. No wonder he wanted the two sisters to be rescued from their discord because that friction was limiting the prayer which was limiting the supply by which he lived. So Brother Nee, as a member, to change the metaphor as a branch in the vine, is deeply rooted in the body. Nothing could separate him, take away the meetings, take away the ministry, the books, the Bible, even his dear wife. Nothing could, nothing did sever him from the body of Christ. So the life of the body, which is the God of the body, the process and consummated triune God, supplies him. He in turn, because of his sufferings, is touching new dimensions of life that the body had never known. And he releases this by his living in the body into the stream of life that's flowing in the body, which is one reason why in so many continents and countries and languages, his ministry is abounding more and more. When we enter Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, where, where Jacob was at Bethel, we are in a four-in-one personal entity. Four persons being intrinsically one according to God's economy, one body, one spirit, one Lord, and one God and Father, distinct yet inseparable. 
And when Paul came to this, he came to the crystal in his understanding of the body of Christ. Point one says Ephesians 4, 4 through 6 is the crystallized speaking of the Apostle Paul concerning the body of Christ. What he said in Romans 12 is crucial. He presents the body from the perspective of the organic union. What he says in 1 Corinthians 12 is crucial. He presents there the body from the perspective of God's administration. What he says in Colossians 1.18, 2.19, and 3.15 is crucial in relation to the all-inclusive, all-extensive Christ who is God and man and the reality of every positive thing. What he says in Ephesians 1 is marvelous. It shows that the goal of God's choosing us, his predestinating us, his redeeming us, his dispensing himself into us, is to have the church, which is Christ's body, the fullness of the one who fills all in all. But when he comes to Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, he is intensely focused. And these three verses, arguably, although we don't argue, meaning you can make a case, are the deepest verses in the New Testament. They seem so simple. But I would say the most profound aspects of the ministry of the age in its highest development are related to these verses. Brother Lee gave a series of messages in Taiwan on a further consideration of the body of Christ. And, and he said at that time, if you have the right view, these messages, only four of them, will occupy you for a year. Then he said, actually they will occupy you for the rest of your life. That is why we say, with necessary humility, we hope to touch the hem of the garment. And we are touching it. But we cannot, in one short weekend do what it will take the body of Christ a long period of time to fully enter into. But we have to begin somewhere. Why not here? We have to begin sometime. Why not now? To enter into the heart of the heart of the divine revelation. These verses show us that the triune God and we, the redeemed, are mingled together into a constitution. 
And this constitution is the body of Christ. This is why you were created. God foreknew you and He designed you in a certain way that as a vessel who would become filled with Himself, you would express an aspect of Christ. So He chose all of us, predestinated all of us to be part of this constitution. You look at the picture of the children of Israel as an illustration of how we were redeemed not only for the body, but in the body. God appeared to Moses, commissioned him. God charged Moses to establish the Passover. Moses communicated the word to the elders who are the direct administrators. And according to the house, everyone followed the word of the ministry. Moses was an apostle who received the divine revelation. And they all slew the lamb, processed him, applied the blood to the door, entered into the house, ate the whole lamb. That night, judgment came on Egypt and on its idols and the demons behind them. Then the word came, leave Egypt. They did not go out one by one. Each one was personally participating. But we are so individualistic that we view everything until we grow in life as it relates to me. There's a gospel hymn that has a chorus. And I'm not mocking. I'm simply quoting. It says, Oh, that will be glory for me. Glory for me. Glory for me. When by His grace I shall look at His face. Oh, that will be glory, glory for me. Is that God's eternal intention? Glory for me, glory for you. Glory his, is His intention, but it's the city of glory, the new Jerusalem. Our destiny is to be part of this constitution. And once we realize this, <clears throat> then there will be, and I'm not exaggerating, unprecedented experience and enjoyment of the Lord through the divine dispensing. Because you are not any longer an isolated individual loving the Lord wanting to be an overcomer, wanting to be spiritual. You are now still a child of God as an individual, 
but you are a member of a vast, universal, four-in-one, organic entity. And because you realize this, and because you are now living as part of this, God can safely release to you measure upon measure upon measure of grace, of enjoyment, of supply, of life, of experience, of Christ. Because He knows that you finally know spirituality is a body matter. You love Him, you are experiencing Him in the body as part of the body. It's a body matter. Now, point two opens this way. Seven things form the base of our oneness. And Paul mentions one body first. Why doesn't he say one God? His burden is the body. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God. These seven ones are of three groups and we'll try to consider in sketch the first two. The first group that of the one spirit with the body as his expression consists of one body, one spirit, and one hope. One body and one spirit. The one spirit here is the all-inclusive spirit. God the Father is the source of the body. Christ the Son is the element of the body. And the Spirit is the essence of the body. Where the Spirit is, in reality, there the body is. And where the body is, there the Spirit is. More spirit, more body. The spirit is the essence of the body. And with the one body and the one spirit, we have one hope. I recognize, as a not young human being, it's normal for us to have hopes for our human life. It's normal. But certain hopes are incompatible with the body life. Because those kind of hopes are related to expectations for self-advancement, for some kind of benefit. Some hope 
of being prominent, some hope of being outstanding, some hope of being this or that. And the body, where the cross is operating, will kill all hopes that are incompatible with the constitution of the body. Because the body itself has only one hope. And that is of our transfiguration, our glorification, to be the same as the Lord at His coming. I don't know how, and maybe it's not really possible, how a really young person can have much of this hope. But when you're not young, and you have decided you will not Botox yourself, you will not get endless cosmetic surgeries to improve this or that, when you recognize your body really is a body of death, your hope, and this is my personal hope, is not a better body. I want a brand new body. A transfigured, glorified one that will never get sick, never take naps, never be tired, never be weary, will be a glorified body. But the hope of the body is that the whole body itself will be transfigured. I would like to say the New Jerusalem is the transfiguration of the body of Christ to be the city of glory shining in the whole universe. So some saints, after many years in the church life, they're disappointed. And the reason for disappointment is the self, because they were hoping to either be an elder or to be married to one, neither, and neither one has any idea what they're hoping for. If my wife knew what her husband would be doing 44 years into their marriage, I think she would have taken the Lord's will, but it would have been with much consideration. How much will you be home? I don't know. It's not up to me to say. We have unnecessary disappointments because the self is expecting something in the church. So now you don't get it. You may think you're a little toe and you've got this strange hope that you're a little toe today, but if you grow and be transformed, you'll be an eye or the mouth. But when you grow and are transformed, you will be a grown and transformed toe. You won't morph into another part of the body. You will just be the member you are. Okay, let's look more closely at this. The body of Christ takes God's chosen and redeemed people 
as its framework and the spirit as its constituting essence. God does not want an entity that is only divine. He wants something human as the framework. Because of this, there is a paradox in our spiritual experience as we mature. The high peak of the divine revelation is that God became man to make man God in life, in nature, but not in the Godhead for his expression. The paradox is, the more we become God in this way, the more human we become at the same time. Because we are a God-man. So, may I tell you again one of my favorite brotherly stories. This goes back to 1968. 140 of us are visiting Taiwan for the first time. And we were instructed, we were exhorted, we were admonished. Don't be worldly, don't bring anything worldly, don't do anything worldly, don't buy anything worldly. And here I am, I don't want to be worldly, so I'm in my mind, is it worldly to have an electric shaver? Is it worldly to have a short sleeve shirt? None of us want to be worldly. So we're there, and we're sincere kids. We don't want to be worldly. And one Lord's Day afternoon, the saints took us by buses to the harbor or the shore at Keelung. And we got out of the buses and we're walking along the shore. And we saw these vendors selling bags of seashells. And I wanted to get a bag and others wanted to get a bag of these seashells. But we had a little colloquy worldly it would be worldly and we didn't want to be worldly so in fact we were not worldly and I can close my eyes and it's been more than 42 years and I'm walking behind brother Lee to the bus and we are moving our arms but he's not moving his arms because in each hand are bags of seashells <laughs> So I suppose I have a request of the dear brothers in Taiwan. Would you take me to Keelung once again? How human. How human. I mean, you have to go through your religious I'm not worldly stage because we don't want to be worldly. And we're not worldly. But we're not worldly as God-men are not worldly. Not as monks and nuns are not worldly. Not as strange religious people are not worldly. We're not worldly in a divine human sense. So the human framework is here and it's solid. And it's uplifted and it's a resurrected Jesusly human humanity with the spirit as its constituting essence. The spirit as the essence of the triune God is the essence of the body of Christ. Now I just read these next four sentences. They are amazing. The essence of the body, okay, that's the spirit. 
the essence of the body containing the divinity of the triune God has the capacity to supply the divine life. The essence of the body containing the excelling humanity of Jesus has the capacity to supply this excelling humanity. The essence of the body containing the all-inclusive death of Christ has the capacity to put to death the negative things. The essence of the body containing the surpassing resurrection of Christ has the surpassing capacity of resurrection. Do you realize what these four points refer to? They refer to the four points of message two. The crystallized significance of incarnation, human living, crucifixion, and resurrection. All of these crystallized significances are elements of the spirit who is the essence of the body and the spirit as the essence of the body is supplying right now the divine life, the excelling humanity, the putting to death and the capacity of resurrection to the body. The spirit is intensely active, deep in our being. But he doesn't make a show. That is why, sometimes for no reason, we're just recovered again. We're revived again. You are disappointed with your prophecy. So you said, I'll never do that again. And then two days later, you're at the microphone again. Why are you doing that? There's something in you That's a divine essence that is supplying you, anointing you, leading you, encouraging you to prophesy so you can release something and then get exposed more so the Spirit can apply death to you more so you can be in resurrection and you say, I don't want to be exposed more so I will not speak more. So you set your will not to speak. This time you last five days. Then you do it again. The Spirit is very active to supply you, to motivate you, to expose you, to apply death to you, to resurrect you. You may say, I don't want this to happen. I have to tell you something. You're not in charge here. (laughs) The Spirit is the essence. The Spirit is flowing. The Spirit is dynamically active. What a wonderful Spirit. Oh, He's the wonderful Spirit in us. God is in the Son. And the Son's the Spirit now. Oh, He's the wonderful Spirit in us. Amen. He's the wonderful Spirit in us. Amen. God is in the Son. The Son's the Spirit now. He's the wonderful Spirit in us. He's the wonderful spirit in us. Us is the body. Now listen to this good news. Three, the spirit as the reality of the triune God is the reality of the body of Christ. 1 John 5, 6 says, the spirit is... The reality. Is anyone here hungering 
for reality? I don't know how you would define the reality that you're hungry for. Maybe you're looking for human genuineness, sincerity, truthfulness. That is very good, but that is a byproduct of the spirit of reality, the spirit who is the reality of the triune God, guiding you into all reality, constituting you with the reality of the triune God and of the body of Christ. And the issue of that is that you become a pure, transparent, genuine, sincere person of truthfulness. There's not a shred of hypocrisy, of pretense, of masking or falseness in your being anymore. What a corporate living. A group of people in the midst of the unreality, the virtual reality of our society with its technology. A group of people who are as real as the spirit of reality himself because the spirit of reality is making them real. Amen. One night I was serving as an usher in Eldon Hall in Los Angeles, maybe 1969. So I got to stay until the last saint was gone, including the elders if they were meeting. And I had just a longing to have a little fellowship with an older brother, Samuel Chang. But I didn't have the boldness to just say something, but he sensed it. He sensed it. So he made himself available to me. And I shared with him what I thought I was experiencing of Christ. And this brother Chang, and we remembered him at the graveside when we buried him, was well known for his one-liners. And after I told him, it only took about a minute or two, what I thought I was experiencing, he looked at me and said, Brother, the Lord will make you real. Do you realize how packed that sentence is? On the one hand, he's saying, Ron, nothing that you're telling me is real. <laughs> and the reason it's not real is that you are not real. But he could have just exercised cruel discernment and said, that's not real, that's not genuine, that's self-generated. But he prophesied, the Lord will make you real. One day, I believe I will see Brother Chang. Maybe I'll be able to have fellowship with him and say, Brother Chang, look, the Lord made me real. And Brother Chang might say, 
Of course, I prayed for you. <laughs> Don't think you had anything to do with it other than to impede the process. But this aspect of the body is especially precious. Reality. The reality of God and of the body. The reality of the process triune God is the consummated spirit of reality. The spirit of reality makes everything of the process triune God a reality in the body of Christ. If you really hunger for this reality, and there is such a hunger, it will be satisfied by the spirit of reality in the body of Christ. Amen. The church is the pillar and base of the truth, of the reality. Reality is a body matter. I say again, those who live in the body are the most real of persons, the most genuine. There is no false humility. Everything is truthful. The Greek word translated sincere is heliokrine, helios, son, krino, judge. Porcelain would be examined for possible fissures or defects by holding it up to the sunlight. Let the light shine through and expose any minor defects. Well, eventually we will be tested by God who himself is light. He will shine through our whole being. And he will be able to boast to the universe. They are perfect. They are pure. My work has been consummated. How wonderful to have the spirit of reality as the essence of the body. Without the spirit, there is no body of Christ, no church. Then the oneness of the body of Christ has the one hope of our calling as the goal. This goal is for the body to be brought into the divine glory of the process triune God who is mingled with the body. This is my first time in the Netherlands. This is the first time to minister at a conference of this type in Europe. I really know little. I don't know where this comes from. from. From the time I began to pray with the brothers, I just have such a hope for Europe. Amen. The hope for the manifestation of the body of Christ throughout continental Europe. Amen. I don't like, ooh, I didn't have any hope for my personal life, but now I came to be in the Castile and I'm meeting with the saints. Now I have hope. No, no, no. I have hope for the body of Christ to be raised up, grown up, 
and manifested in little local churches all over Europe. Isn't it good to have a hope that transcends our puny little self? As parents, we will always have hope for our sons and daughters. Those of you who have young ones or teenagers, give up the hope that it gets easier as they get older. The older they get, the harder it gets. Dear dad, dear mom, that's just the way it is. We have our human hope. I've been hoping for one of mine for such a long time. I don't know what to hope anymore. But I hope for the body of Christ. He's included in that hope. Sooner or later, the body of Christ will be transfigured into glory and manifested in splendor to the whole universe, to the praise of the glory, of the grace, of the triune God. Amen. Hallelujah. The second three form the second group, that of the Lord with faith and baptism, that we may be joined to Him. In verse 5, the Son is referred to as the Lord, as also in Acts 2.36. The Lord is for His exercising of authority for His headship. Why didn't Paul say, one spirit, one son. He says, one Lord. Well, point B will help us. As the Son, He is our life. As the Lord, He is the head exercising His authority in the body. There is one Lord. This Lord will not tolerate any longer in the churches other lords, kings, those rising up above others. I love him, 824. One of the lines says, No high there is, nor lowly. No lowly who disexpect to be ruled over by others. No high who just assume that they're born to be above others. All of that is leveled in the body of Christ. There is one Lord. And He said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Not to Me and you. It's all given to Him even if it flows through us in representation, it's not ours. We're not the Lord. When you seek fellowship, don't seek a Lord in place of the Lord. We have one Lord. We exalt Him. God highly exalted Him. He is the Lord of all. God made Him Lord and Christ. Our believing in Him is related to both life and authority. For He is both our life and our head. 
Christians are divided because they neglect the Lord. That is, they neglect the Lord's headship and authority. And actually, in the years where we were in a much earlier stage, this became an issue time and time again. In the late 1970s, a person, a man of blood and flesh, like the rest of us, actually proclaimed himself to be the universal coordinator of the one new man. And he gestured as if he had a phone in his hand of the style of the time with the buttons. And he said, I want to just be able to make a few calls and direct the situation all over the earth. This elder in that church, he's not one with me. I will get him out of there. I want lots of transfers. And you, you're of me, right? You know that if you're one with me, you'll advance. So I want you to go there. What happens to him, it doesn't matter. Let him, let's put him in, out to pasture somewhere. Such a thing actually happened. How it happened was a great exposure. We should learn from this. What an insult. What an affront. Why would no one with a proper spirit counter that? Why would no one with a proper attitude stand up and say, Brother, Jesus is Lord. There is no such thing as a universal coordinator of the one new man. There is only the body of Christ with one unique head, and that head is the God-exalted Jesus. Amen. Only the head has the right to direct the movements and activities of the members of the body. Amen. Brother, we appreciate you for your past service. We appreciate your work in the gospel. We will not accept, we will never accept this self-designation of being the universal coordinator of the one new man. There is one new man, and in that one new man, there is only one person who is the all-inclusive Christ, and in that one new man, you, brother, and I, and the rest of us are crossed out, and Christ is all and in all. Amen. End of story. One Lord. One Lord, before the one rises up to fight against God, we will establish the testimony here in Europe. And the faithful will have to perhaps sacrifice to maintain the testimony. We will establish this testimony. One Lord, one Lord in Italy, one Lord in Germany, one Lord in Spain. One Lord. Amen. He has all the authority. 
And he is our life. And we are one because we all directly contact him and honor him. Then the one faith and one baptism are the two means to accomplish this oneness. The Lord's relationship, sorry, the body's relationship with the Lord is one of faith and baptism. Through faith, we believe into the Lord, and through baptism, we are baptized into Him. This baptism, and there was one today, that was a burial. Those dear saints that were submerged in the water, there is a reality behind that water. You were baptized into Christ, into the death of Christ, and into the body of Christ. You are dead. You are buried. You are terminated. You are separated from Adam. You have been transferred out of Adam into Christ. You have been transferred out of the old man into the body of Christ. And all of us right now may be in the reality of our baptism, terminated. Baptized into His death, baptized into His person, baptized into His body. By faith we believe into Him. John 3.15 We believe into the Son. Not only in Him, we are joined to Him. Our being merges with Him. We have been baptized into Him to complete the union. And this baptism separates us. Pharaoh's hosts were pursuing us. They seem to be invincible. But we cross the Red Sea of His death. Egypt, the chariots, Pharaoh himself... They're all buried, bound for the lake of fire. We've been transferred, bound for the new Jerusalem. What a future we have. Through faith and baptism, we have been transferred out of Adam into Christ, thereby being joined to the Lord. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We are in the process of being mingled and incorporated with the process and consummated triune God to be a glorious four-in-one organic entity, the body of Christ, to consummate God's eternal purpose, to express Him corporately, and to crush and destroy the enemy to bring the Lord back as the bridegroom for the wedding feast, to return with Him as His victorious bridal army, to defeat Antichrist in His army, to return with Him as the corporate smashing stone, to strike the toes of the great image and abolish all human government, and then to become a great mountain filling the whole earth. This is our destiny. I am happy. I could do a dance here. I want to praise the Lord. I want to thank the Lord that I am part of this. That we are in this together. Hallelujah. Amen. Time to prophesy. Let the Spirit flow.